through the Gospel of Luke, the book of Luke. Uh, We're in chapter 18. Uh, This morning we'll begin in verse 31. Uh, So if you brought your Bible with you, you can turn there. If you didn't, that's fine. Just uh, try to listen along as we read and as we talk about it this morning. Um, I want to give just a little bit of context before um, we read that. Uh, From last week, as we uh, began earlier and started with uh, chapter 18, verse 1 last week, and uh, we saw a, a few things in there that are going to be really important for us to remember as we look at the text uh, this morning, because it's, you know, it's kind of one continuous you know, story here. And so we have a couple of things um, in that section that are really important. One is that Jesus says, um, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. I just want you to have that in your head, in your mind. Um, That'll come into play later on. And then we have Jesus having a conversation with a a rich young ruler, man described as a rich young ruler, who, um, you know, had, says, you know, I've I've done everything I'm supposed to do. I'm a good person. Certainly, you know, I deserve to, you know, if there's a heaven, certainly I deserve to be there, is the, the attitude and mentality that this young man has. You know, I've, I've kept the law. I've done, you know, what is right. And Jesus says to him, you know, I want you to sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. And it says there that the, the man was, was sad because he had great wealth. You know, he was sad because he had great wealth. And, and obviously when put with the choice of, do I follow Jesus or do I continue with my life by my rules, by you know, how I want to live? Which one am I going to take? He was sad because he had great wealth, and that was his, his choice. And so then Jesus says it's harder, for, uh, a camel, well, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for a, a camel to enter the, you know, go through the eye of a needle. And so his disciples say to Jesus, well, then, you know, who can be saved? You know, who can be right with God? And Jesus gives some great hope there when he says, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And so I want you to keep all that in in your minds this morning as we uh, continue on uh, in the Gospel of Luke and the end of chapter 18 and the beginning of chapter 19. Uh, Before we we read that and and begin to study it this morning, I'd like you to join me in prayer again this morning, but I, I have a request of you this morning. You know, before I, I pray, I just want to give a minute of silence. I just want you to ask, ask God to speak truth into your life. Just a very short, simple prayer. This, you know, God, please speak truth into my life this morning. Um, so please, I'll give you a minute of silence, and then to do that, and we'll join together. Heavenly Father, we just come to you now, and I just ask that you would speak truth into our lives. Dear God, please speak truth. We ask that you would speak it in love, and we know that your word certainly does this. Um, 
it gives us the truth. It gives, us, gives it to us in love and gives it to us in hope. And Lord, I pray that we would see your word that way this morning and that we would seek its truth and that we would um, have it apply into our own lives. And Lord, you know there are many different people here this morning of uh, different backgrounds and different places in life, and yet your word is so powerful that it can speak to each one of us exactly where we are and give us exactly what we need um, in this moment. And so we ask that you would do that by your power, God. We thank you for Jesus, uh, for his words, for the life that he offers us, for his teaching of us even this morning as we read what, what he said and what he taught. Jesus, thank you that you went to the cross and that you paid for our sins and that, the, that death could not hold you, the grave could not keep you, but that you are a risen Savior. So we thank you and we ask these things in your precious name, dear Jesus. Amen. So it says in verse 31, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Uh, and so, you know, it's kind of an abrupt thing. We just had the, the conversation with the rich young ruler, and then, you know, Luke um, has, has this account of what Jesus is saying of, you know, we're going to Jerusalem, and, and we're about to have a major shift in the book. Because Jesus, you know, we're nearing toward the end. You know, Jesus is, is, getting, is preparing to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be preparing to have his last words, you know, with his disciples, um, his last interactions with them before he goes to the cross. And so... He wants them to have um, the right mindset, even though they're not going to understand it now, that after these things happen, they'll be able to look back and be like, okay, that's what Jesus told us was going to happen. Because we need to understand their mentality a little bit. Their mentality is that they believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one of Israel, that they believe that he is you know, the Son of God. They believe that he is their Savior and their King, and in their minds, they, they believe and are hopeful that he is going to establish his kingdom immediately with them. And they don't understand the, the prophecies of the Old Testament. They don't understand all the things that point to that Jesus is actually going to die and he's going to suffer. They don't, they don't fully grasp that. And so Jesus is, is throughout his ministry with them is giving them clues, giving them hints, and this is the most explicit he's been with them about what's going to happen in Jerusalem. But even then, they don't, you know, fully get it. And, you know, we, we all have these sort of experiences. You know, you grow up and, you know, your, your parents may say certain things to you um, that, are, that are truthful and that are important, but you don't really grasp it. You know, and then one day, an event happens, you know, some experience in your life happens, and you're like, oh... That's what, was, that's what was meant by that. You know, some of you may be able to relate to that more than, more than others, uh, but we, we can get this concept at least. And so now they're moving forward into, you know, as they're going to Jerusalem. In verse 35, he says, 
As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. And so you can imagine this scene as they're getting near to to Jericho and people are hearing, you know, Jesus is coming. And at this point, still in his ministry, there's there's a large following of people. You know, people want to hear what he has to say. They know he can do, you know, miracles. And what is he going to say? What is he going to do? What might, you know, we see? And you have this, this person who's a, a blind man who is, you know, destitute. He's completely at the, the mercy of the goodwill of other people. You know, there's, there, there aren't, you know, great social programs, you know, for him to be a part of. And so, I mean, he's, he's sitting on the side of the road and he's, he's just begging. You know, and a large group of people go by, you know, that gets his attention, but he has to, you know, ask. He can't see for himself what is happening. He has to ask, you know, what's happening? And they tell him, you know, Jesus from Nazareth is coming. And you find something really, really intriguing here that uh, he says, you know, Jesus um, is the son of David. He goes, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. It's like, well, wait a second. They told him Jesus of Nazareth was coming. He says, Jesus, son of David. What is, what is he saying? And what we see here very clearly is that though this, this man is blind physically, he's not blind spiritually. Because as an Israelite, you know, their hope is that someone, a descendant, you know, in, in terms of its earthly lineage, a descendant of David would come because they know that the, the Old Testament prophecies about there would be one who would come and sit on the throne of David forever and ever. There would be an eternal king that would come. And so he recognizes that Jesus isn't just from Nazareth. That doesn't fully describe, it's like it's truthful, but it doesn't fully describe his identity. He's also the son of David. He is this promised descendant, you know, that has come to be, you know, the Savior. And Jesus says to him, you know, when he asks that he wants to receive his sight again, he says, recover your sight, your faith has made you well. Jesus is, you know, putting a a direct connection that, that this is a person of faith. And so Jesus, in his power, you know, heals him and he receives his physical sight even though thankfully he can already see spiritually. He can see better um, than the religious leaders of his time. That's interesting, isn't it? That a, a blind beggar could see more, Jesus more clearly than the religious leaders who were rejecting him, were rejecting Jesus. It's powerful. And here, his faith is recognized. It's also very intriguing 
I think we need to really recognize and understand that, you know, the people viewed this blind man who was a beggar as a, a nuisance, something, someone who was just going to waste, you know, time, and that they were really the ones that were there to be with Jesus and to see Jesus, and that they were the important ones, and that this blind beggar was a nothing. And yet, Jesus stops. Because he knows that this blind beggar is not a nothing, but is very much a someone. Jesus sees his humanity when those around him and his culture cannot and do not. And you have to understand a little bit of the afflicted mindset, the wrong mindset of the people. You know, the people sometimes viewed as if a person was blind or if they were lame or something, you know, then they probably deserved it because of some sin that they had done. And so, you know, it was, you know, oftentimes a a looking down upon those um, who had difficulties in this life. But Jesus, you know, knows fully, more so than anyone else, that this blind beggar is a human being made in the image of God and who has intrinsic value, not based on anything that he can or cannot accomplish, but based on the fact that God has made him. And God has made him with worth, with value. And that this blind beggar is important. I want to say this to us this morning because you and I, our minds can get warped as well. We can see someone in a bad position, you know, in life, going through a, you know, a significant struggle, or they have, you know, a, a significant disability. And sometimes we can, we can fail to see their humanity. When you see a homeless person, do you see a human being? Or do you see a list of you know, categories? And a list of assumptions about that person? Or do you see a human being? And Jesus always wants us to see the human being. And to deal with that person as a human being. And so may God help us and we, may we become um, more empathetic, but not um, in the wrong sort of way. Because I, I want us to understand this, that those who are, you know, we often so misjudge those who are poor and those who are, are destitute. And we have all these ideas in our head about all sorts of things. And, you know, many times they just aren't, aren't reality. They aren't true. And so we need to see as God sees and not as our world sees. And may God help us for that. Now let's move forward into chapter 19. In verse 1, he says, He entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich and was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up in a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, 
the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today how salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, I want us to catch a couple of things in here that are really important. You may um, remember earlier, uh, I gave a verse from earlier in chapter 18, where Jesus says, unless you, know, you, you become as a child, you cannot enter the kingdom you know, of heaven. Unless you become as a child. And I want you to think about that as we talk about Zacchaeus. You know, Zacchaeus is an interesting person because, again, um, you know, he's, a, he's an outsider. Just like the blind beggar was an outsider, he's an, he's an outsider, just of his culture, of his society, but he's an outsider in a different way. He's an outsider because, you know, he's betrayed his own people. He works for the Roman government as a tax collector, you know, those, the occupying force that's in the land. He works for them, and he's become quite wealthy by doing so. You see, also, he's you know, defrauded people along the way. He's cheated, and he's taken more tax money from people than you know, he should have. And he's put that into his you know, own pocket. Some of his wealth he got from being a traitor. Some of it he got by fraud. He has a reputation. You see, everyone in the community you know, recognizes him as, quote-unquote, a notorious sinner. It's also interesting we see here he's described as being vertically challenged. Now, I might not be the right person to talk about him being <laughs> vertically challenged because I'm not. Um, but you, well, be, you can be vertically challenged in multiple ways. You can be, you can be short and you can be tall. Sometimes being tall also has its, its challenges. You know, sometimes people are like, oh, I wish I was taller. Well, you're probably going to have more health problems when you're older and you'll probably die younger. So, you know, there's that. <laughs> And it's also very uncomfortable on airplanes. And there's that. But we could go, we could go on about um, finding clothes and all sorts of things. But anyway, we all have our own challenges is kind of the point. But here's Zacchaeus. He is significantly vertically challenged. And, you know, there's a crowd of people there. And so he, he wants to see Jesus. But, you know, you can kind of see him like jumping up and down and it not doing much good. You know, he's still not able to see above. And so, like a child, he runs ahead of the crowd and he climbs up in the sycamore sea, the sycamore tree, so that he can see. It's what a kid would do. It's what a kid would do if he went to a parade but his parents weren't there. Or if he's, you know, gotten to the point where it's like, you're just a little too big to be on dad's shoulders or mom's <laughs> shoulders. You're too, you're too big for that. You've got to stand on your own. What are you going to do? Well, you're going to go run, climb up in a tree so you can see. To see Jesus, Zacchaeus becomes like a kid. Just to get a, his eyes on him. But Jesus knows him. Jesus knows that I mean, you, you see here um, a glimpse of the, of the deity of Jesus and that he knows who Zacchaeus is and he knows him by name. He knows his reputation. He knows everything that he's done. And yet he stops there at that tree and says, Zacchaeus, come on down. I need to stay at your house today. And you see the people grumbled and complained, oh, man, he's going to, what is Jesus, what is Jesus doing? What is Jesus doing that he's going to go to this house of this 
notorious sinner. What's he doing? You know, it's kind of interesting that though all of this is here in the Bible for us, yet sometimes, you know, people who say they're Christians or the church or whatever can have a reputation of being just like this crowd of people. And whenever Jesus is, you know, working on someone's life who was quote-unquote outside, people are skeptical and, you know, oh, what's, what's that person doing being a friend with that person? Well, have we not read and seen you know, the, what Jesus actually did when he walked the earth? Because he was willing to be with anyone in any place. Now, we need to be clear. He did ne- never compromised his integrity. He never compromised his holiness. He was without sin. But he hung out with people who were alcoholics and people who were prostitutes and people who were tax collectors and religious leaders and just ordinary working guys and gals and whoever else in the crowds who would come and listen to his word. You know, what we see with Jesus is that while other people, you know, while the religious leaders want to put people in categories, and these are the people that you can talk to, and these are the people that you can't, that Jesus, his desire was to give everyone opportunity to know him and to experience his love and his truth. And so the reaction of Zacchaeus here is really powerful. Because without being given any sort of command by Jesus to do anything with his money, he says, Lord, you know, I will give, I'm giving half of my goods to the poor. And for, you know, those he defrauded, he's going to give them back four times what he took from them. Now we need to be really clear that these actions did not save Zacchaeus, but that these actions were the evidence of salvation in his life, of a, of a changed heart, of a changed mind, of a changed perspective, that there was going to be a change, there was going to be a, a, you know, something you could see that you could tangibly identify in his life was going to be different. You see, with God, you know, God knows, the, knows our hearts. He knows every person's heart. And so he sees the truth of our hearts no matter what anybody else sees. He knows whether we are right with him or whether we are you know, distant from him. He knows if we've, you know, believed what he wants us to believe and, and accepted him fully. He can, he can see all of that without any sort of action being done, but... You know, on a, on a horizontal level, human to human, we can see a change in Zacchaeus's life, and that how he, what he used to do with his money, and not even what he used to do with it, but just that he was motivated by it. You know, his you know why did he you know work with the Roman government? Why did he cheat other people? Because obviously he you know he he loved money, he loved having money. That was his heart before he encounters Jesus. 
And now, when he has Jesus, that money's not really important anymore. He's willing to part with it. He's willing to pay back what he stole. Plus, you know, times four. You know, it's, it's changed him in a radical way. It's going to be obvious to the people around him that his life was changed by Jesus. And so I think it's, it's right to be sometimes skeptical when, you know, especially here in the South, where, you know, most people would still self-identify as a Christian. But if it's not obvious in, in the life that we live around other people, we have to ask the question, like, is there an inward reality or is that just an inward law? Because the people around us should be able to tell we've been changed by Jesus. We've been changed by his life. We're motivated by something completely different. <clears throat> but if people look at our lives and see that we're motivated by power or position or prestige or these other things, then how does that show that we've been radically changed by the life of Jesus Christ? By faith in him. How does, that, how does it show it? Well, sadly, I mean, it just, it just doesn't. There has to be a recognizable difference in our, in our purpose in life if we are to claim to other people that we've actually met Jesus. Because, you know, when we, as we see in the, in the Gospels and we see throughout the, you know, even after, after Jesus leaves and the message of Jesus is still pre- spreading throughout the world, that when people truly meet Jesus, it radically changes their lives. And, you know, people may not give away half of all their physical goods or, or whatever, but it's still going to be obvious. It should still be that obvious. Jesus has changed that life. Jesus said to him, verse 9, Today... Salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. And, and how Jesus uses that terminology, son of Abraham, it, it doesn't really have to do anything with a physical genealogy, but it has to do with being a person of faith, because Abraham was known as being a person of faith. A person who you know, heard God, God's call, and left his country and left everything that he had in order to be obedient to that calling. He was a, a man of great faith. So a person can be a son of of Abraham regardless of their genealogy if a person has faith. In verse 10 he says, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Now this is a reoccurring theme um, in the gospel of Luke. In chapter 15 Jesus tells three parables, or three stories. One's about a lost sheep. One's about a lost coin, and one's about a lost son. And he talks about the rejoicing when each one of those is found, and he compares that to the rejoicing in heaven whenever someone who doesn't have God turns from, their, from themselves, from their false beliefs, from their you know, idols, basically, whether those are physical or mental or whatever, spiritual, lays all of those down and turns and follows Jesus that Jesus is actually um, seeking to save the lost. This is for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. 
That's powerful. Powerful. God has, you know, God has a mission and a, and a purpose, and that mission is to seek and to save. So thankful for that, that truth, that reality. But there's a phrase in there that I, I want to talk about just for a minute because it's the second time we've had it in this passage, and that's the phrase, um, son of man. What, what does that mean? Uh, you know, Michael addressed this um, clearly when he told earlier on Luke 17, uh, but I just want to recap a little bit of that and um, build on that this morning for us because it's, it's really important because, you know, pe- some people will look at that and say, you know, Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. He, he didn't refer to himself as, you know, he's not referring to himself as the son of God. So he's not really claiming, making a claim for, to have deity, you know, to be God in him, himself. Um, and so I want to talk about that a little bit. In Luke 17, we saw a, a Samaritan leper who returned to Jesus and fell at his feet and gave thanks. And we saw that, that Jesus accepted this man's worship. Uh, we see that in contrast um, to other humans who receive worship. In Acts 10, Peter and the Roman official Cornelius. Cornelius meets Peter and it says it fell down and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. You know, Peter, Apostle Peter says, I'm just a man, just like you. We're no different. Stand on up. Same with Barnabas and Paul and Lystra in Acts chapter 14. Um, you know, they had, they had done these miracles. And so, you know, the Greek people there thought, you know, hey, we've, you know, Zeus is here. You know, our gods have come down to us, and they were going to offer sacrifices. And it says, when Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, and you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed the the nations to walk in their own ways, Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. But even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. And then we also have this in Matthew chapter 14, when Jesus stops the wind on the sea. He stops the storm. It says, when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. And so we see these two phrases used throughout the Gospels to describe Jesus, the Son of Man and the Son of God. Now, why do you have that, and why do you have two different terms? Well, the reason we have that is because for the crucifixion of Jesus, for his death on the cross to have any meaning for us today, he has to be the Son of Man and he has to be the Son of God. He has to be both of these. The reason is he has to be the son of man if he's going to represent the whole human race. He's going to represent us as a human representative, the human race. But he also has to be the son of God. He has to be fully God in order to be sinless, in order to be perfect, to be without sin, to be able to have all power over sin and death. If he's going to be the one that has the power to forgive sins and the power to judge sins, then not someone who's just a man cannot do that. 
If he's going to be the eternal king that is worshipped forever and ever, he has to be more than a man. He has to be a man in order to be our representative sacrifice, but he has to be more than just a man if he's going to be the eternal king who judges all things. And that can be difficult. That can be difficult for our finite minds to wrap around. How can God be, you know, how can Jesus be fully God and fully man? Well, that's really tough for us. But we also have to understand we have certain limitations in our, our capabilities, even in our, in our minds, because we are finite. We are by definition finite, you know, in our understanding. And yet we are trying to describe the infinite, the eternal, the all-powerful, the living, true and living God of the universe. You know, we, we have a hard time figuring out very basic things in our, in our world and in our environment and what we should do and what we shouldn't do and what works and what doesn't work. We have all sorts of problems that you would think we could be able to solve with the intellectual abilities and the capabilities that, that we, we have. Yet we have a hard time with even those you know, things here on the earth and yet you know, our finite minds try to describe an infinite God. Yeah, we can anticipate some difficulties along the way with that. But God is gracious and God reveals himself to us. And God shows us truth. He gives us sight, just like um, he gave the blind man sight to see physically. He also gives us sight to see things spiritually. If If we will ask him, if we will humble ourselves before him and say, Lord, you know, because I've been infected by sin, I've been infected by this world and the way this world sees things and understands things. And Lord, I have to come to you and say that my perspective is off. My vision is blurred. God, help me to see what is true, what is love, and what is real. Help me to see it, to know it, to understand it, to believe it and for it to become who I am. But the cool thing about it is, it says the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, that if we're willing to say, Lord, I do not have all this figured out, if we are able to humble ourselves before God and say, Lord, I need your help, then certainly if he's the one seeking to save those who are lost, he's certainly going to seek and save those who admit I'm lost. I need, I need you and I need your direction. I need your guidance. I need, I need everything. But I, you know, as I say that, though, I want to be very careful. Because Jesus, yes, he does solve our problems, but he's much more than that. You know, he, he, he's not someone you go to just in hopes of having an easier or a better life. I'm afraid you'll end up disappointed. Because it might be your definition of easier and your definition of better. But Jesus is a, is a king. He's a savior, but he's also a king. And with that means that he has a authority. So if, if we're going to follow Jesus, and we're going to follow him as savior and king, that means that you know, I don't get to call the shots anymore. 
but then I'm, I'm looking to God to call the shots. And my responsibility is to hear and to listen and to ask what shots are being called and to try to follow that clearly and, you know, in obedience that, you know, when, when I begin to follow Jesus, when a person begins to follow Jesus, it's a change of who's king. And it really is an issue of obedience, and this may come across as offensive, but it is just in love, God, to tell you the truth. That, you know, when you, when you don't have God and you make, you're, you're doing what you want to do in your life, you obey yourself. You call the shots and you obey them. I want to, I want to do this, I want to do that, I want to do these sins. You know, I want these friendships, I want these relationships, I want this job, I want this career, I want... You call the shots and you obey those shot, those those calls as you desire. You are the God of your own life, put it simply. But when you come to Jesus, there's that acknowledgement, I don't call the shots anymore. I'm not little G. I'm not the God of my life anymore. But God is God. And I am his as the scripture refers to it, his child. Therefore, I have to obey. I am his servant. Therefore, I need to obey. You know, the, the wonderful thing about it is that God, uh, man, if, if it's kind of one of those deals where it's just, it's just like you've got to be real sometimes in, in understanding our own limitations. And then put this in a very, you know, human terms, if my child is having, you know, has a significant problem with their heart, and they're going to die, do I want to perform that surgery, or do I want the trained surgeon to perform that surgery? I want the trained surgeon to do it. You know, that doctor isn't going to love my kid more than I love my kid, but that doctor is certainly more equipped to save my kid's life. Than I am. Well, we look at our own lives. What happens when I'm in charge of my own life and I just do what I want to do? Well, that's a train wreck. How about giving it over to the one who made life and knows exactly how it's supposed to be done and lived? there's probably going to be some better results. The wonderful thing about it is you don't love yourself more than God loves you. You see the difference there in the illustration? In the illustration with my, with my son or my daughter, I love my children more than the doctor loves my children. Yet the doctor can do a lot more for them. And the other one, though, God can do a lot more for us than we can do for ourselves. But he also loves us more than we love ourselves. He loves us with a perfect love. When we become his children, when we, you know, through faith become his, enter into his grace, his investment in us is to love us as his children and to desire what is best for us in all things at all times. Now, again, we might have some different definitions of that. So, I don't, again, I don't want you to be disappointed. Because there's sometimes when my kid wants to do something that's foolish or that's dangerous, and I have to stop them, and they throw a tantrum. 
Well, there's times where, you know, I want to do something stupid or foolish and God stops me and I want to throw a tantrum. And so we have to trust God is good and he is holy and he is powerful. We asked last week, is there any barrier? What is your barrier? For the rich young ruler, it was his riches, but for each person, it's a different barrier in order to, to come to know Jesus, to believe in him. What is your barrier? Is it intellectual? Is it emotional? Is it spiritual? Is it, you know, what, what is it? Can you identify it specifically? If you haven't become a follower of Jesus yet, can you specifically identify what the barrier is to the, the why? And then the question today as we even look at Zacchaeus and others, are, are we willing to, to let it go, whatever that barrier is? Say, Lord, take it from me. I don't need that anymore because you are better. You are Savior. You are King. And to take, to take him. And so there may be some of you that are, are wrestling with that you know, today, and I, and I ask you to wrestle with it. Because each one of us must decide you know, who Jesus is. And then once deciding who he is, we have to decide, are we going to follow him or not? And really, it's, it is serious business, and it's nothing that we should take lightly or that we should you know, play, you know, try to play games with. And I think that many times people want, you know, they want this like, the, the, they want the peace that Jesus gives, but they don't want the responsibility that comes with that or any of the responsibility to obedience that comes with that. And so Jesus gets treated kind of like a genie in the bottle sort of thing where, you know, when you're having a bad day or when you want something, you know, really bad, you can kind of say your prayer and rub that genie bottle and Jesus pops out and then gives you what you asked for. But that's a really terrible view and idea of who Jesus is. He is so much more than that. He is so much more than that. He is Savior. He is King. I'm going to read this last section, and it's, this is probably the toughest part um, for today and maybe one of the toughest things in the entire Gospel of Luke. And, you know, this is, again, one of the reasons that we go straight through. We go straight through the books because, again, we're not trying to fool anybody. We're not trying to pull anything over anybody's eyes, or we're not trying to create a different picture other than the one that the Word of God gives us. And so we just, we, we take it all, and we try to be faithful to that, even when it's hard. And so let's just read verses 11 through 27. It's just one story, and we'll finish with this. It says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem, because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Remember back to what we talked about before. Disciples thinking everything's going to happen right here and now, but only part of the story is happening here and now. And so verse 12, he said, Therefore a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. And calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas. That's a piece of money. And said to them, Engage in business until I come. 
But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. And when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had, been, to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that they might, he might know where they had gained by doing business. And the first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. And then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, and he said to him, the nobleman said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by him, take the <coughs> mina from him and give it to the one who has ten. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. Now I tell you that everyone who has more will be given from him, the one who has not. Even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now that's tough, especially the ending. But I want to go through this quickly. And we'll make sure that we understand it. You know, as Jesus tells this parable about a nobleman going into a far country to receive a kingdom and then to return, who is he referring to? He's obviously referring to himself. You know, he's the one that's going to go to the cross. He's, he's going to die. He's going to be buried. He's going to raise from the dead. But then, after a little more time with his disciples, he's going to ascend into heaven. He's going to leave. And then one day he's going to return. That's what he's getting at here. And there are people, particularly in this time, they said, you know, we do not want this man to reign over us. Well, this is the reality that we see in the time of Jesus. That, you know, the, the religious leaders did not want Jesus to reign over them. And neither did many of the ordinary people. But there were some who were servants or who said they were servants. And they were each given, you know, responsibility. Amina wasn't a large amount. I mean, it was, it was significant. It was about three months, you know, worth of salary about a three-month wage that each of these men were given. And, you know, the first one, he takes it and he multiplies it and makes it one to ten. That's pretty good. And so Jesus says, okay, you know, you'll have more responsibility in the, in the kingdom, ten times as much, and to the one who five, five times as much. But then this other man, he says, you know, he, has this, he, he ultimately has the wrong view of the nobleman, of the king. He has this view that he's... He's harsh and he's unreasonable. But if you get down to it, it's all an excuse. He doesn't want, he's just like the others who don't want this man to be the king over them. That's really his heart. So he has no interest in doing anything with what he's been entrusted with. He's, he's so lazy with it that he won't even take it with the, to the bank. It's a very simple thing to do. It's, a, you know, it's going to take him 10 minutes to take it to the bank and to deposit it and just to leave it there. And let it gain some interest. But you see that his heart is the same exact as the ones who say, we don't want this man to reign over this. It's just like them. And he says, 
to everyone who has, more will be given. Now, this is where we stop having a physical illustration to a spiritual illustration. But we're not talking about money anymore. Jesus isn't saying who has more money will be given more money. That's actually, I mean, if you think about it, that's contrary to what Jesus taught about the poor and dealing, you know, on those things. It's not what he's getting at. He's talking about on a spiritual level. That those who have received spiritually are going to receive more. If you have Jesus here and now, you know, in the kingdom, you're going to see even more clearly. You're going to have so, you know, much more. You have joy now. You're really going to have joy then. But if you have nothing now, if you don't have God now, then when Jesus returns to judge, you'll have even less then. You'll have nothing. You'll be separated from him. And that's the point of the story. And, and Jesus puts it in a very stark and, you know, what we would call, we might be called a harsh way. And as I was studying for this and preparing for this, you know, my first thought was, I mean, I'll just be honest with you. My first thought was, how, it, how can I soften this? Is there a way I can soften this? Can I, can I make that punch not hit so hard? That, you know, that verbal punch that Jesus gives here. Is there a way that, can I, can I step back from this? And then you know, I realized it's like I had to, it was the Spirit of God that rebuked me or rebuked myself, whatever. But it was like to lessen that powerful warning would be dishonest. It would be dishonest about the truth. And it wouldn't be a loving thing to do. If I see that there's a clear danger right before you. And I don't give you every warning that I can possibly give you not to go toward that danger, then how is that truth? How is that love? You know, I have responsibility and an obligation to say, no, there is a clear danger that is it's very real. Don't go that way. We've used this illustration before, but you know, you say the bridge is out. If I don't tell you the bridge is out, if I'm not jumping up and down in front of your car and screaming at you, don't drive that direction, the bridge is out, then how could I say that I'm full of truth and love and the sort of truth and love that God has? No, the bridge is out. You go that way, it leads to destruction. But you can make a turn where there is a bridge. There is a bridge between you and eternity. There is a bridge between you and God. And it is Jesus Christ himself. And it is good and it is safe. It's not safe in the way that sometimes you want to think about safe. But it is securely in the hand of God. Because in this life and in the earth to come, anything that happens to me, I know that I am secure in the hand of God. Actually, you know, Jesus taught, he said, don't fear those who can kill your body. But rightly, you know, respect the one that has the power to throw body and soul, to cast body and soul into hell. That's the truth of it. When we look at the end of the word of God in Revelation chapter 22. Jesus says in verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me, or bringing judgment with me, 
to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so they might have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. Continues on, I just read verse 17. It says, The Spirit and the broad, that's the church, say, Come. And let the one who hears it say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. If you go back in John 4, there's this picture, there's this, with this you know, real historical event where Jesus goes to this well and there's this, there's this Samaritan woman there you know, drawing water. And he asks her for a drink and she says, what are you doing? You know, you know, let me just summarize it for you. What are you doing as a Jewish man asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Because the Jews and Samaritans didn't exactly get along. And so Jesus is breaking all the cultural norms at his, of his time when he asks that woman for a drink. And she goes on, that, you know, he, uh, he identifies her, her life uh, when she says she doesn't have a husband, and she says, you rightly say that, you've had four, and the man that you're with now is not your husband. And then she understands that he's at least a prophet and starts to ask him questions because he knows everything about her life. And he tells her, you know, he who goes and, and drinks of this water out of this well is going to be thirsty again, but he who drinks of the water that I give them will never thirst. And so here we, we bring it back. It's cool that, that, that we have that picture there of Jesus with that woman at the well. And then here, the end of the word of God, ends, you know, the, toward the very end of it, one of the last lines says, Let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The message is, there's nothing that you can do to earn it. You're not going to be able to be good enough to earn the life-giving water that God gives. It's not going to happen. But you can receive it freely because it's been paid. That water of life has been paid for on your behalf. And you can receive it, and you can drink from it, and you'll never thirst again. It will satisfy. I have a friend of mine who's in um, the country of Niger, and he was in a store uh, one day, and he was, um, you know, he invited a couple of, of men to a, uh, a meeting that he was having, you know, about you know, reading the, the Bible and studying it. And one man was trying to um, convince him, you know, to go after this, this other way of believing, this other way of life. And he said to the owner of the store, you know, if I, if I come in here um, and, I'm, you know, and I'm looking for bread and I, and I find it, well, I, I'm not going to go throughout the rest of the city looking in other stores for bread. Why? Because I have my bread, right? So, so you know, in my life... I was looking for peace. I was looking for joy. I was looking for purpose. And I found all of those things in Jesus Christ. And I stopped searching. You know, searching is good. You need to search. You need to search for the truth and to search for what is real 
and what is not. But when you found it, your search is over, right? You just have rejoicing. I have found it. And what I testify to you this morning, if you're looking for peace in your life, if you're looking for joy in your life that goes beyond your circumstances, if you're looking for purpose in your life that goes beyond paying the bills, Jesus will give you all of these. And he's ultimately the only one who can. Let's pray. Dear God, you are so good to us. Um, Even though sometimes there's parts of your word that we read and they are, they're hard. Um, They bring us of an anguish. But we know it's for our good that, that God, you warn us and you want what is best for our lives and that you have given us your very best. You could have given us anything that you had and yet you gave us your very best. You gave us Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. God in the flesh and yet um, our human representative to die on the cross to pay for our sins to pay the debts that we could not pay, to take away our guilt and our shame. Lord, thank you that we don't have to live ashamed anymore, but we can live in peace, in joy, and in purpose. as we walk through this life with you, dear God. God, we believe you love this world, the people in it. We believe you love our city. And that you want more and more to hear your call, to humble themselves, and that you are seeking and that you are finding, dear God. Please continue to do that even today. As we take this bread and we take this cup this morning, we give you thanks that you did not leave leave us in a helpless and hopeless place, that you provided life.